You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. This is your captain speaking. We're putting the seatbelt sign on and asking everyone to remain in their seats. There's turbulence ahead. Now, how many of you have ever heard that announcement before? Right? If you've flown on an airplane, I don't know that I've ever flown on an airplane where that announcement didn't come on. Seems like turbulence is inevitable. And so if you've, you've flown on an airplane, you know that announcement, you've heard it, and, and there's some here who've heard it so many times, they just brush it off. They don't even notice it. They, they really don't even pay attention. They've got their, their headphones on. They, they're actually kind of uh, perturbed that their movie has stopped, you know. And some of you, though, you hear that announcement and your heart starts to race a little bit. Your palms start to get a little bit sweaty and you feel just that low-grade anxiety. Maybe as it keeps going, you grip the armrest a little bit. Some of you close your eyes and start to pray. And most of the time, the turbulence is mild and it lasts for just a few moments. And other times, it can be quite jolting. You feel that drop in your belly like you've just gone on a roller coaster ride. Your drink kind of slops on the table. People caught in the aisle lurch to the side, lunge onto somebody. And the sound it creates sometimes can make it seem as if the plane is going to crack open and you're going to fall out of the sky. So what causes turbulence? Well, turbulence occurs when a plane hits a strong wind current and it, and it starts to push or pull the plane. And what happens is these different air masses collide at different speeds and directions. And, 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 and the, the plane will absorb and feel the stress and the strain of that disturbance. But here's the good news. Pilots aren't worried at all about turbulence. See, airplanes have been designed to withstand the stress and strain of turbulence. Think about it like a car. When you go over uh, uh, bumpy roads, there's no actually perfectly um, uh, uh, leveled road. They all have bumps and in, 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 in different things in it that would, that would cause a rough ride. But your car has been designed with a suspension system to absorb those rough surfaces and potholes. In fact, the only reason pilots avoid turbulence is out of comfort and convenience for the passengers. It really isn't a safety issue. Even the most extreme turbulence is not a threat to flip the plane upside down or to cause it to go into a tailspin and cause an airplane crash. Now for the passenger, the experience of turbulence is real. It can be unnerving. It's, it's uncomfortable. The sounds just themselves make you nervous. And in some severe cases, you may get a, a, a minor bump or bruise because you're not in your seat when you need to be. But at the end of the day, turbulence poses no real threat to your safety. This morning, we continue in 1 Peter chapter 4. And this idea of turbulence is a good analogy for what Peter is setting up for us today. He's giving us insight into how to live in turbulent times. See, we will experience suffering. It's a major theme in this letter. Even persecution. We're going to face temptations 
that feel like turbulence to live like the world. And as chosen exiles, you can expect opposition. And so Peter is asking this question, how do we then live with turbulence? Peter has three things for us this morning. First, we need a cruciform resolve to live for the will of God. He's going to say, listen, Christ endured suffering. And he did so because he had set his face towards the cross. He, he had a steadfast resolve to live for the will of God above everything else. And Peter says we need to adopt that same kind of cruciform resolve. And second, he's going to say we need a countercultural lifestyle that's resistant to peer pressure. As we face the pressure to reject our allegiance to Christ, to fall in line with the cultural tide... Peter says we need to have a resistance to that temptation to live for Christ instead. And third, we need to live with the end in mind for the glory of God. Just like turbulence poses no real ultimate threat to airplane passengers, the, the turbulence of our times ultimately poses no threat to the Christian. He ends this passage in a doxology of worship says God is in control. He has dominion over everything and his glory will prevail. Therefore, we can pursue serving the church and living on mission. Three things this morning to live in turbulent times. A cruciform resolve to live for the will of God. A countercultural lifestyle that's resistant to peer pressure. And living with the end in mind for the glory of God. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 1, as we see that we need a cruciform resolve to live for the will of God. Peter writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now let's follow Peter's logic here. Here's the premise that he's building on. Jesus Christ suffered in the flesh. Now here's some Christology for you. This is the, the doctrine of Christ all throughout the New Testament. Jesus is fully God and fully human. Both are true, 100% true at the same time. Two natures. Jesus has a divine nature. That's why he's fully God. He also has a fully human nature. He's not 50% one and 50% the other. It's not a 60-40 mix. He has two natures that uh, coexist inside him. And here Peter is highlighting... He's drawing attention to the reality that Jesus is a real human being who lived a real earthly physical life. There was a heresy starting to circulate at the time that he wasn't really human. That he just appeared to be human. And that's problematic because if he's not really human, he can't really be our substitute. And so you notice earlier in the last chapter and in this chapter, Peter specifically says, in the flesh... Just like you and I have flesh and bones, Jesus had flesh and bones. He lived a real earthly physical life. And Peter also highlights that during his ministry, his life was characterized by trial, temptation, and suffering. Let me just give you a quick hit list of the sufferings of Christ. After 40 days of fasting, Jesus being weakened and hungry and tired was tempted in the wilderness by Satan himself. He didn't send some, some scrub demon, some JV guy. He went himself to tempt Jesus. Throughout his ministry, he was uh, routinely slandered and misunderstood. 
Think about how we feel when we are misunderstood. Just imagine that that's just your perpetual everyday existence. Your words are being twisted. People are saying things about you that just aren't true. You, you feel like you're always going uphill. People lied about him, despised him, and rejected him. How was his family life? Well, most of his family thought he was crazy. Most of his best friends abandoned him when he needed them the most. He was arrested on trumped up charges that were false. He had an unjust trial. And the scriptures tell us he was physically beaten to the point of being barely recognizable. Then he was shamefully stripped naked. And he was crucified on a Roman cross as an enemy of the state. Crucifixion is to date the most painful form of torture. It combines maximum pain with maximum duration. So you stay alive long enough to experience the physical uh, pr- pain. That, that, that's why when we, we, our word, we, we, when, when we experience something that's really painful, we say it's excruciating. That word is just a, 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 an Englishized version of excruciating. It, it's from the cross, excruxio. When we want to describe the most painful pain we experience, we say it's like being crucified. All of that, even though the Roman government declared him to be innocent. They looked at all the charges and said, we find nothing that would condemn this man. Not not only to like a misdemeanor, but all the way to crucifixion. And yet, they did so anyway. Though he was innocent, completely without sin. The Bible says he became sin, bearing our sins in his body. So that he suffered the curse of sin, though he never participated in sin. On the cross, he was forsaken and guilt-laden like a lamb led to the slaughter to take away our sin. This is what Peter said last week in chapter 2, verse 21 to 24. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, so that by his wounds you have been healed. And this premise that Jesus suffered in the flesh, Peter says, has implications for the Christian. In other words, this reality... These true facts come with a logical and moral necessity. And Peter says, because Christ suffered in the flesh, you must also arm yourself with that same way of thinking. See, Christ had a way of thinking, a mindset, a resolve that enabled him to endure all that he went through. And Peter's saying, we need that same cruciform resolve. This word for way of thinking... It's the same word that's used in Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 when Paul says to have this same uh, uh, mindset like Christ had. It's used throughout the book of Proverbs to refer to the kind of mindset that has a determination to stay on the path of wisdom and to make right moral decisions. In other words, a great English one word translation of this would be resolve. This determined way of thinking, a resolve 
Peter says, because Christ suffered for you, arm yourself with this same cruciform resolve. Now this word cruciform, it means to have the shape of a cross. It's cross-like, cross-shaped. Our resolve should have a cross-like shape to it. Karen Jobes in her commentary on 1 Peter says, Christians must be armed with the same disposition and resolve that allowed Jesus to set his face resolutely toward the cross. Meaning, Jesus was willing to endure the shame and the pain of the cross because of what it would accomplish. Namely, our salvation. See, Jesus didn't accidentally live the perfect life. He didn't just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time to go to the cross to die for our sins. He made an intentional, resolute, determined decision to die for you and me in our place for our sins. Luke, uh, the, the gospel writer Luke says that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. He knew exactly what was happening on his last mission to Jerusalem. And Peter says... This kind of resolve has a purpose. Let's keep reading. He says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So this mindset that Peter's talking about, this cruciform resolve, is aimed and determined to do what? To live the rest of our lives for the will of God. See, Peter knows everyone's going to live for something. It's just in our, it's hardwired into our uh, human nature. We're going to spend our energy on something. We're going to give our time. We're going to give our resources and energy to live for something. And Peter says, that should be for the will of God. Set your heart, set your mind, set your will to live for the will of God instead of human passions. So here's where that cruciform resolve comes in. When you find... That it's hard to live for the will of God. Because friends, it's hard. It's difficult. Passions of the flesh are alluring. When you find that you would rather live for human passions, Peter's saying, remember that Jesus Christ suffered for you. His sacrifice then becomes this primary motivation for us to be willing to suffer, to give up, as it were, these temporary pleasures in order to be faithful to him. Now look at that phrase, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does that mean? It seems kind of confusing. Well, first, it doesn't mean that suffering eliminates sin in our life. Oftentimes, suffering can be a, a catalyst for it, right? Where we're, 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 we feel the pain of sin and, we, and our response to that, our response to suffering might be more sin. This also doesn't mean that believers who have adopted this resolve will 100% stop sinning. This verse isn't teaching that sinless perfection is possible in this life. There's just this, this paradoxical reality that though we've been saved from sin, until Christ returns, we will still struggle with it. It's a part of, of the Christian life. So what does it mean that Christians who... Uh, who have this mindset, have ceased from sin. What it means is that Christians who willingly suffer unjustly because of their faith, it shows that they've got this determination to strive for holiness, to choose obedience, even if that means suffering, even if that means unjust persecution. 
It means that Christians who take the sufferings of Jesus personally and really understand it, when the gospel reality moves from the head to the heart, it starts to transform you from the inside out, and it begins to produce a real change in your life. This is Peter's way of saying what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6. So you also, Paul says, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Another way to think about it is this. For the Christian, though sin no longer reigns, like has mastery or power over you, sin does remain. So sin no longer has the mastery and power over you, meaning you can actually say no. We live in this paradoxical reality that there will still be sin in our life. We've said this before and it's worth repeating. In Christ, we've been saved from the penalty of sin. So if you are in Christ, the penalty that you deserve for your sin has been paid for in Christ. And right now, this life of sanctification, we are being saved from the power of sin, so that as we continue to follow Christ progressively more and more, we will see victory over sin in our lives. And one day, when Christ returns, we will be saved fully and completely from the very presence of sin. What the apostles are telling us here is that until our salvation is fully and totally complete, though sin no longer reigns, it will remain. And our fight against sin begins with this cruciform resolve to live for the will of God. So if we put all of this together, Peter's saying this. Christian, remember, Christ suffered for you on the cross. He had a determined heart and a settled resolve to go to the Christ despite the suffering it involved. And so that becomes an example for us. Because we're united to Christ, we too can have that same mindset, that same resolve. And when we're armed with that resolve, we're willing to give up the pleasures of this world to endure unjust suffering and choose to walk in holiness. This passage reminded me of the marathon mindset. You talk to any marathon runner, they'll tell you that the marathon is as much a physical exercise as it is a mental exercise. There's a man named Ian Torrance. He's an ultra marathoner. Have you ever heard of these ultra marathons? If you thought a marathon was hard, ultra marathoners do marathons in their sleep. These ultra marathons can be 30, 60, or even 100 miles long. I don't even like to drive 100 miles, let alone run 100 miles. And he's not only finished more than 200 ultras, he's won 53 of them. Now listen to what he says. Success can be found at any distance and at any level if you have the right mindset. Here's an expert on marathon running, and he's saying what it really ultimately comes down to is having the right mindset. At the end of the day, he's saying it's the determining factor in completing a marathon. See, most people don't even get up off the couch to try it because there's just this mental block that says, I can't run 26.2 miles. And Peter is saying, if you have the right mindset, it will become the determining factor in completing the marathon of life. It begins with this mindset that says, I am setting my resolve to say no to sin, even if that means suffering for the will of God. So you can't make these decisions in the moment. 
In the moment, the temptation will always seem too alluring. In the moment, the suffering will feel too overwhelming. This is, this is pre-work you have to do. It's the prerequisite work you've got to, 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 to do in, 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 the, in the quiet recesses of your heart. As you're praying, as you're studying scripture, as you're maybe on the aftermath of sin of going, no, no, I'm, I'm done with that. I'm setting my resolve now. I'm saying no to sin. And when we have that kind of settled opposition to sin, this cruciform resolve, that's the first step Peter is saying into living for the will of God. See, many of us live a defeated Christian life. We take these paths of least resistance because we've just never made that determined, resolved, resolute decision to live for the will of God. We put, we put that off and we say, you know, in the moment, I'll, I'll make the call. But friends, Jesus has broken the power of sin in our lives. That's what his work on the cross did. And he's given us his life as an example to follow. And because we're united to him, we have access to that same determined, resolute mindset to live for the will of God. So Seven Mile, have you made a cruciform resolve to live for the will of God. We make these kind of decisions all the time. In our careers, uh, in parenting, in marriage, in life, and the, uh, the extracurricular activities that we're going to do. We, we say, I'm going to do this. But have we done that for living for the will of God? Are you co- cultivating that resolve by renewing your minds through Scripture? Do you remind yourself regularly of the sacrifice of Christ to motivate yourself as you're fighting against sin. As we seek to live in turbulent times, first we need a cruciform resolve to live for the will of God. Now look with me at verse 3 to see that we also need a countercultural lifestyle that's resistant to peer pressure. Peter goes on, he says, For the time is past that suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, uh, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now Peter gets granular here. He makes a list and he starts to list out some specific areas of sin and temptation. Now this list in verse 3 is is certainly not exhaustive in terms of all the different kinds of sin. But it's certainly a very dark one to say the least. The first five on this list involve um, unrestrained desires for sex, food, and drink. And in general, every sin on this list has a common denominator of a lack of self-control. If you wanted to say, what do all these sins have in common? It would be unrestrained, uh, a lack of self-control. See, see, uh, sin thrives and it grows in the heart that lacks self-control. If your heart uh, struggles with self-control, just the very um, uh, seeds of different types of sin will settle in that kind of, of, of soil and it will grow and grow and grow. And when we come to a list like this in the Bible especially ones with really dark sins like these, there's a temptation to read them and go, hey, I'm doing pretty good. I don't get tanked all the time. I'm not participating in this smutty underworld. I'm not some lawless criminal out there. So I'm doing good, right? I give myself an A on this list. But it's important when we come to lists like these not to move too quickly past them. Remember, this list is what happens when self-control is fully abandoned, and it gives way to serious outward sin like this. 
But if we're sensitive to the Holy Spirit and we're uh, serious about putting sin to death, we'll ask different questions when we come to this list. Not, have I done anything on on this list this week? Am I participating in these sins? But rather, where do I lack self-control? Where in my life, if, if right now, these, these, these certain sins in my life, if, if self-control was abandoned, is it possible that I could usher in into some of these dark pathways? What small and maybe secret sin in my life, if left unchecked, could grow into these more serious and outward sins? Now that's a much deeper question. And that's a question that's relevant to us all. For sure, if you read this list, and I'm not asking anyone to raise their hands, but if you read this list and you're going, I actually am participating in these sins, then let me just, as your pastor tell you, you need to repent. These are the kind of sins that destroy lives, that destroy families, that will ultimately come to light. These are the kind of sins that that you need the help of Christian community to start walking down the road of healing and holiness. I would encourage you to confess those kinds of sins to someone, a pastor, a friend, so that you can start to bring it into the light, out of the, 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 the dark where it festers. So you can walk down the road of healing. We might think that we can't confess these sins to Christ or a pastor or a friend because we're too far gone or that the shame of it might feel crippling. But that's a lie from the enemy to keep you in your sin. A couple years ago, we read a book together as a church called Gentle and Lowly. And Dane Ortland in his book says this. It's one of my favorite passages from the book. He says, Jesus deals gently and only gently with all sinners who come to him irrespective of their particular offense and just how heinous it is. It reminds me of some of those sins on that passage, right? Now, what elicits tenderness from Jesus is not the severity of sin, but whether the sinner comes to him. Whatever our offense, he deals gently with us. But if we never come to him, we will experience a judgment so fierce it will be like a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth at us. If we do come to him, as fierce as his lion-like judgment would have been against us, so deep will his lamb-like tenderness be for us. We will be enveloped in one or the other. To no one will Jesus be neutral. You hear what he's saying? If we come to Christ in our vulnerability and honesty with our sin, we will be met with a lamb like tenderness. But if we don't, if we prefer to remain in the dark, we will experience his judgment. It's one or the other. There's no neutrality here. No matter your sin, no matter how much shame or guilt you feel, come to Christ and he will deal gently with you. So as we think about this passage, everyone has something to consider. Whether you're experiencing and participating in the actual sins on the list, if you are, bring that sin to Christ and ask for forgiveness. I would also encourage you to go one step further, to bring it into the light of Christian community so that you can find healing and holiness. 
that we can help you put that sin to death. One of the things we say, it's on a sign as you pass into these doors every day or every Sunday, that we are a church of gospel, safety, and time. We will walk with you. This is a safe place to confess sin. And for everyone, we all need to consider, where do I lack self-control? And Peter goes on and says, with respect to this, that's living in these sins, they are surprised when you do not join in them, join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So Peter starts to unfold for us what happens when we live countercultural lifestyles. What happens when we decide not to participate in the things of this world? What happens when we make that cruciform, uh, resolved decision to live distinctly Christian lives? P- Peter says, first, people will be surprised. In other words, people are going to notice. They're going to say, listen, they're living differently. And they're going to malign you. They will interpret your abstinence from sin as condemnation. They're saying, what, you think you're better than us? You're not going to join us in what we're doing? You think you're so much better. Now, Peter's readers are facing the difficult choice of either taking the path of least resistance and joining in that flood of debauchery and being accepted, or the path of most resistance, swimming against the cultural tide and adopting the same uh, normal uh, norms, values, and practices to be accepted by society. See, they can either adopt those practices or, and, 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 and be accepted by society, or they can be obedient to God and suffer the consequences of unfair criticism. Unjust suffering from unbelieving family and friends and neighbors. Now, some things never change because the same reality that first century Christians were experiencing are the same reality we experience and feel today, isn't it? Don't you feel that pressure to go along with the cultural tide, to be accepted? And it's ironic that the so-called tolerance movement of our day is incredibly intolerant. See, tolerance used to mean You could disagree with somebody, you could tolerate those differences, and yet you still accepted the person. Because there was this shared belief that everyone should be free to have and express their beliefs without it uh, meaning that you hated them. But in a lot of the cultural conversation today, this new tolerance means, listen, keep your beliefs to yourselves. Keep them private. You can believe all you want to believe in your own home. Just don't bring it out here where I have to see it. Or else you will be harshly criticized. And this is what drives this public shaming, this cancel culture that's happening in our day. Brothers and sisters, Peter is saying, we must resist the temptation to take the path of least resistance and give in to peer pressure. See, we all thought peer pressure was something that happened in high school. And that once you got out of high school, peer pressure went away. But I would say peer pressure is just as, as alive and thriving as an adult as it was as a teenager. And as we strive to live for the will of God, as our beliefs and values and practices become informed by Scripture, we will necessarily be swimming against the cultural tide. And Peter, as a good pastor, says you should just expect that. 
Don't think it's strange. Don't, don't, don't be surprised. But remember, ultimately, you will be vindicated on the day of judgment. That's what he says here. See, he's looking down the halls of human history. He's saying, listen, yes, you will be judged by the court of public opinion today. But there will come a day when all of us will give an account to God for the choices that we've made. That's why Peter says that God is both the, living of the, uh, the judge of the living and the dead. And ultimately, Peter's saying, that's whose word ultimately matters. That's whose verdict ultimately matters. So if you live according to God's will, you will be judged by the court of public opinion. In this life, you'll be found guilty and you will be unjustly criticized. That's what Peter is saying when he says that um, the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. He's not saying that when you die, you get a second chance um, of, of salvation or to believe in the gospel. What he's saying is think about those who have already died. The gospel was preached to those Christians, and it wasn't preached in vain. In their lifetime, they were judged and found wanting by the court of public opinion. But instead of being crippled by their criticism, what did they do? They leaned into the living hope of the gospel. And now that they've died, they've been vindicated by God. And now they're fully alive by the Spirit of God. At the end of the day, friends, God will settle all the scores. In this life, we might be judged by, uh, by the fair weather court of public opinion. But in the end, those who live by God's standards will experience vindication. They will experience the unending life of ever-increasing joy. Being obedient to God and suffering the consequences of criticism and condemnation by unbelieving friends and family is difficult. I don't want to sugarcoat it. It's hard. But it is the path that leads to life. And so when we put all this together, Peter is saying, Christian, turbulent times are coming. In fact, they're already here. There's going to be ample opportunity for sin. Even some of the sins on this list. There will be pressure to give in. And you might just rather be caught up in the flood of sin. And what does Peter do? He says, remember Christ. He suffered for us. Not only as an example of our endurance, but his very sacrifice freed us from the power of sin. And if you remember what he said earlier, to an eternal inheritance that is unfading, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. The Christian life, by definition, is going to be countercultural. You will face opposition. But instead of giving into that pressure, lean into hope and remain steadfast and strong. As we seek to live in turbulent times, we need a cruciform resolve to live for the will of God. We need to adopt a, a countercultural lifestyle that's, that's resistant to peer pressure. And finally, we need to live with the end in mind. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Peter reminds us that the end of all things is near. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, this phrase is biblical language for the final stage of God's redemptive plan. It's talking about the second coming of Christ. The return of Christ where God's kingdom is fully realized here on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ inaugurated or began the, the establishment of the kingdom of God. 
But the second return, or the second coming of Christ, this return of Christ brings the, the, the consummation where God's kingdom is fully realized as it is in heaven here on earth. And when Peter says that the end is at hand, the focus is not on the soonness or the immediacy, but rather that there are no more steps in God's redemptive plan that need to happen between now and that final return of Christ. So think about it this way. Is there anything that we need to do to usher in the kingdom of God? Like, is there a step that's incomplete that needs to be completed so that Christ can come? Well, in one sense, no. Christ finished everything he needed to accomplish on the cross during his life, death, and resurrection, ascension ministry. So that Christ can now come at any point in time. The only reason Christ has not returned is out of mercy and kindness. In 2 Peter 3 verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. You see, the reason the Lord delays his return is in order to give more people repeated opportunities to hear and respond to God's offer of salvation by grace through faith. It's his kindness. That's why he tarries. That's why he delays. But there's nothing else that needs to happen in terms of our uh, uh, the work of redemption in order for him to come. So in the time between the end times, that last hour, this time we're living now, Peter says, you should expect turbulence. But we should do so knowing that ultimately God wins. That's how this whole thing ends. God wins. And the, the turbulence that we might experience today is no threat to the advancement of God's kingdom. So when will Christ come? No one but God knows. But it's as true today as it was in Peter's time, that it is at hand. It could happen at any moment. So in other words, right now in this in-between time, don't expect your best life now. Your best life is yet to come. It's coming. You have a super bright future. That inheritance that he talked about in chapter 1, that's your best life. It just doesn't happen now. It happens in the full establishment of God's kingdom. And so what do we do now in the in-between? Peter says, be faithful to what God has called you. And he finishes this section by giving us four practical things to pursue as we live for the glory of God. He says, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as the one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If verse 3 was a list to avoid and things to put to death, verses 7 to 11 are things to pursue and to cultivate. So first he says, be self-controlled and clear-minded so you can pray. In a world where feelings and impulses rule the day, Christians are to be marked by self-control and clear-mindedness. And what's more, we are to be a people of prayer. And this is really a beautiful 
cycle because he's saying when we're self-controlled and clear-minded, we will pray. And at the same time, prayer will help us be self-controlled and clear-minded. It has this beautiful uh, 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 cyclical effect. In order to live out the gospel, believers must pray. Two, he says we also must love one another with gracious Christ-like love. He says we're to love one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. Here Peter's riffing off Proverbs 10 verse 12 that says hatred stirs up strife but love covers all offenses. In other words what Peter is saying is distinctly Christian love pours water on conflict not gasoline. It covers and therefore smothers the fire. It's quenched when someone decides to stop the downward spiral. When we choose to overlook an offense, when we choose to believe the best about someone uh, instead of the worst, when we choose to extend a preemptive forgiveness, when we do that, that's love covering conflict. And I think Peter is writing this because he knows in the midst of anxious times, in the midst of turbulence, there's, in the midst of suffering unjust criticism, we can be on edge, Right? And it's just a recipe, recipe for conflict. And Peter is saying, I know. So let's preemptively, earnestly love one another with a gracious Christ-like love. He goes on, he says, we also need to practice hospitality with gratitude. What's hospitality? It's relational generosity. It means being generous in our relationships. Welcoming others into our lives and our spaces the same way that Jesus welcomes us. Do you remember what Paul said in Romans 15, 7? He says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. How has Christ welcomed us? By giving up everything. Therefore, there shouldn't be anything that's not um, on the table for us to give up as well. When we come to see that everything we have, our homes, our time, our resources, our lives, all of them, our gifts from God. When you recognize that, your heart will be filled with the kind of gratitude that starts to generously flow to others. And think about it. In the midst of conflict, in the midst of turbulence, in the midst of being misunderstood at, a, at, at the culture at large, our hospitality, Peter's saying, becomes a powerful antidote to, to the animosity towards the gospel. In her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Rosaria Butterfield writes this. Radically ordinary hospitality shows a skeptical post-Christian world what authentic Christianity looks like. She says, let God use your home, your apartment, dorm room, front yard, community gymnasium, or garden for the purpose of making strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. Because that's the point. Building the church and living like a family, the family of God. It was normal, everyday hospitality that started to, to uh, move through the Roman Empire despite sanctioned heavy persecution. And it radically transformed the Roman Empire. Rosaria Butterfield was welcomed into faith through an invitation to a meal. And finally, number four, Peter says, serve one another with the gifts that you have received. You see, God is a generous giver. And he gives his children gifts to be used to serve one another. And so what that means is we take inventory. Where has God gifted me? And how can I be used by him for God's glory? 
And I love what Peter says here. He says, not only does God supply the gifts, so your gratitude should go to him. You shouldn't be prideful and say, look at how gifted I am. Every good gift we have comes from him. But he says the, the, the strength to use those gifts also comes from him. So not only is he the giver, but he's the energizer of those gifts. So if we put all of that together, this last section, Peter's saying, friends, take heart. Jesus is coming. So you can endure whatever the current situation is. His kingdom will come. And so when you think about the end is coming, don't use all of your energy to stockpile dry goods and ramen noodles and bottled water. He says instead, instead of being doomsdayers, be self-controlled, be clear-minded, pray often, love one another, invite your neighbors into the spaces and places of your life, serve one another and do it all. For the glory of God. Brother and sister, when we walk out of this room, you can expect turbulence. And I know it can stir anxieties and it's uncomfortable, it's unnerving. And you might even get bruised along the way. But remember, just like turbulence on an airplane, it poses no real threat. God is in control. Let that truth settle the matter. Let it put steel in your backs to live with a cruciform resolve, to live for the will of God. Have a countercultural lifestyle that's resistant to peer pressure and live with the end in mind for the glory of God. Let's pray.